Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are in Matthew chapter 12 in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 12, and we are working through a series I have titled Jesus Worldview. The title of the message today is, Lord, give me a sign. Lord, give me a sign if you're taking notes. This is sermon number 54 through the book of Matthew, and this is through a series I've titled Jesus Worldview where we look through the eyes and the lens of the Lord Jesus to see what his view is on the world around us, on life, family, and all that is going on. We take the ancient writings of our God, of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, and we extract them and we understand them and get their meaning, and then we import them into the 21st century. We apply its meaning to real life right now today. We'll be covering verses 38 to 45, but I uh, heard of a story. Maybe you heard of this one too. Child asked his mother how people were born. So his mother said, Adam and Eve made babies, and their babies became adults and made babies, and so on. And the child went to his father and asked him the same question, and he told him, we, well, we were monkeys, and we came from monkeys, and then we evolved to become like we are now. The child, shocked, ran back to his mother and said, Mom, you lied to me. Dad said we came from monkeys. Mom replied, No, your dad was talking about his side of the family. See? <laughs> Guys, I told you, you know, we got the ladies last week, we get you this week. Matthew chapter 12 in our, Bi in our Bibles here is your sign, looking for a sign. Everyone seems to be looking for a sign, and uh, whether we're mystical or not, when something uh, kind of out of the ordinary happens, sometimes you're like, was that a sign? Is that like something in the universe telling me something? Even people who are not religious seem to uh, adhere to signs and to notice certain things going on. A sign that always tripped me out growing up, and this is one of my little secret things that I always was in awe of, was it would be like during times when I'm really having a difficult moment or I feel overwhelmed, I don't know why, but consistently, time after time, the miracle bird would show up, the hummingbird. I'd be down, I'd be overwhelmed or stressed out about something, all of a sudden I just look over and boom, the hummingbird's just staring at me. I'm like, what? The only bird that can fly backwards, hover in place, back and forth. You look at the stats on the hummingbird, it's absolutely incredible how many times it flaps its wings in a single second. What they're able to do, it's a miracle. The way it's engineered and designed, it shouldn't be able to do what it does with those little wings. But it's designed perfectly, it's a miracle bird. Again, that's one of my little secret dumb things that I grab onto. Maybe it's the Lord, maybe it's not. I don't know. But it sure does minister to me at times. But oftentimes, we are always looking for a new sign. And you've heard it said, if God would just do this, then I would believe. If God would just show me this, then this would happen in my life. A lot of people are looking for a sign, looking for an opportunity, and Jesus 
comes to the scribes and Pharisees today and tells them, you've got your sign. It's here. This is where our story picks up in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read verses 38 to 45. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? We always stand for the reading of God's word to remember whose word it is. Not mine. So the words of the Lord Jesus. And it's the only words that can actually change your heart and mind forever. I can't do that. I can motivate. I can encourage. But I can't change minds and hearts. I don't have the power to do that. But God's word supernaturally gets into us challenges us, speaks to the deepest parts of who we are. Matthew chapter 12 in our Bibles, take a look at verse 38. It says, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, this is the legacy standard version, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it then it says I'll return to my house from which I came and when it comes it will find it unoccupied swept and put in order then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first that is the way it will also be with this evil generation let's pray father we thank you for your word we pray now and ask by the power of your holy spirit would you reveal its truth to us lord would you give us the true sign Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see it and understand it, receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Remember last week we saw the Lord cast out a demon in a man who was mute and blind. Do you remember? The Pharisees didn't deny Jesus could cast out the demon, but they accused him of doing it by the power of Satan. To which he challenged them, saying, a kingdom, city, or house divided cannot stand. Why would Satan cast out one of his own demons? Then the Lord declared, you are either for me or against me. You are either for my kingdom or against my kingdom. There is no in between. Then he declared, all sins can and will be forgiven, except for the one who knows the truth and goes on a campaign for the rest of his life to tear down the truth of God's word. That is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He challenged them to watch their words for the mouth reveals the heart and the tongue in it is life and death. Good fruit and bad fruit, it declares the tree. It brings forth salvation and condemnation. It was a sermon titled, Two Kingdoms, One Choice. If you missed it, you can go back and find it on our website or on our YouTube channel. They're all there on our podcast as well. A little commercial. 
The story picks up with the scribes and Pharisees wanting a sign, a magic trick to prove that Jesus really is who he says he is. Look at verse 38 and 39. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Rabbit out of a hat, please. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given. No sign but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he describes that sign that was given just as Jonah was in the sea monster, or some of your texts say the whale, the belly of the whale, three days and three nights. So the Son of Man will be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. First notice he called them an evil and prostitute generation for wanting more signs and wonders declaring that they still don't believe but he does answer them he says the only sign this generation will get is a sign of Jonah the prophet just as he was in the depths of the ocean three days so the Messiah will be in the depths of the earth three days this is your sign this is the only sign you get and need it is the resurrection why doesn't Jesus call why or why does Jesus call them adulterous for wanting more signs and wonders? Because it's that question that we have heard for so long. God, if you are real, do this and I'll believe. If you're real, make a star shoot across the sky right now and I'll believe. Then it happens and you go on your way. Well, maybe just coincidence. Right? How many times have we done this? Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I'll follow you all the days of my life. He does, and people go on their way. It's like a spouse cheating and leaving over and over and over again for more signs and wonders, seeking love in everything except for the one who is there. The Lord is there, and the implications of his greatest sign, the resurrection, is that he really, really, really loves his people. He's already given the greatest sign. And he has paid the highest price with the greatest sign to bring us close to him. So to turn around and say, Lord, can you now pull her out of, out of a hat? This is, this is ridiculous. It would be like the Lord raising a dead man to life right in front of their eyes for them only to say, Lord, can you do that card trick again with the four aces? No, no, I just raised a man from the dead, didn't you see? Yeah, yeah, but we, we want to see the card trick again. He calls them evil and adulterous generation seeking for tricks more than a savior. There is no greater sign than the one God has already given us. Nothing greater in relation to the human and life. He promised to raise himself from the dead and actually did it. This is what all of Christianity hinges on. Did you know this? If you want to disprove Christianity, if you want to crush it, you just disprove the center of it. What is the center of Christianity? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If this did not happen, then none of this is true. None of it. This is just a big game. We're just messing around. This is fairy tale stuff. It's a myth. But if he did raise from the dead, there are great implications.
great implications. And because it's in our text today, I want to lock down the resurrection once again. It doesn't matter how far I want to run from God, my reason first doesn't let me. I can't get away from certain ideas. Number one, I cannot get away from the fact that there is information in everything in the world. In every single cell in the universe, there's information locked in there, and I want to know where that information came from. It comes from a mind. Can't get away from that, so I just went from atheist to agnostic. There is something in the universe, no doubt. Now, what is it? And we can go through the, uh, really, all the steps that I go through to get to that point. We can do it over coffee if you want to. Um, but there's a great book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. You should read this. Um, Frank Turek and, uh, yeah, Norman Geisler. Norm Geisler wrote it. Great book. Um, you look at the steps of how we go from um, atheist to believer. How do we connect the thoughts and the idea but really the thing that blows the whole thing open is if the resurrection really did happen, the implications are very great. That means there is a God. That means that Christianity is the center focal point of that relationship with God because of all that Jesus declared. And that means that if he declared these things and said, I'll prove it by raising myself from the dead, it actually is true if he raises himself from the dead. He says a lot of things are not true, and he says a lot of things are true, and he wraps it all up and concludes it by saying, I'm going to show you a trick. I'll raise myself from the dead. This will be your sign, and this will be the proof that I am the way. I am the truth, the only truth in the universe. I am the light, the life. No one comes to God except through me. This is the argument of Christianity. How do we know the resurrection is true? Are you ready? Here is your sign. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, the apostle Paul wrote, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The apostle Paul, the greatest apostle of the church, just comes out and says it straight up. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, my preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I love his honesty. But if it's true, then it's all true. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in London, Back in the 1800s, he says the resurrection is a fact better attested than any event recorded in any history, whether ancient or modern. It is not a fairy tale. It is a fact. And we build the fact of the resurrection the same way we build the facts of the other ancient literature. We do it the exact same way. We hold the Bible up in a place, in a category called ancient literature, and we test it in the same way we test Plato and Homer and Aristotle, the same way. And if these things are true, then I am telling you the Bible is way more true. How do we know? Let's go through it. Let's talk about it. How do we know Jesus really rose from the dead? Number one, the tomb of Jesus is empty. Think this through with me. I've been there. I lived in Israel in my 20s, spent some time there roaming around and having fun. And I want to ask you this question, how do you lose the body of the most famous person to ever walk the earth? He's just gone. Really? Well, where's the tomb? You lost the Messiah? 
the one who promised he was going to raise himself from the dead. Like, the biggest funeral, the biggest memorial service in all of history, his whole gig was, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. You'll watch me die, you'll have a memorial service, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And they lose that body. He had impacted the entire region and the entire area, and magically they don't know where it went. Or he rose from the dead. Number two, all his disciples, all, all, all of his disciples died saying it was true. You think that one of them would have said, dude, don't torture me. It's a goof. We're just, we're just made it up, man. No, no, no. Don't do this to me. Don't fillet me. No, no, don't impale me with a spear. No, don't throw me off the pinnacle of the temple. No, don't crucify me upside down. No, don't put me in a boiling pot of oil. That's how they died. I have all 12, all, all 11 of them, 12 of the apostle Paul, written down. Peter was crucified. Andrew was scourged, naked body, crucified. James was beheaded. John was thrown into a boiling pot of water, but God, or oil, but God delivered him. Philip was scourged and crucified and then hung. Bartholomew put to death by the Romans. Matthew, martyrdom in Ethiopia. Thomas was shot to death by arrows. James the Less was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. Simon was crucified and buried. Jude was cruelly put to death. Matthias um, was put to death three times. Crucified, stoned, then beheaded. Um, this is crazy. Again, one of them would have spoken up and just said, dude, we're, we're lying. This resurrection thing ain't true. We were just spreading this lie because we we're trying to build this religion so we can create a movement. Please don't do this to me. Torture to death. And they'll stand firmly all the way until death, his closest companions saying, we saw the risen Lord with our own eyes. We can say no other. Number three, the ancient historical documents of the New Testament declare so. We have 5,600 manuscripts. 5,600 manuscripts. You go back to the manuscripts of like Homer and Plato, these texts that we pull from all the time that we say are absolutely true, they only have like 300 or 800 manuscripts. And we declare they're absolutely true. But the Bible, 5,600 manuscripts? Oh, no, no, no. It's a myth. Really? So when the Bible trumps the criteria of the ancient documents and does a great job proving itself, it's not true. But these other writings, we don't need much to prove them to be true. Hmm. We are told in these documents in the New Testament that over 500 witnesses, point number four, saw him at one time walking on the earth after he died. 500 people at one time it was documented. Now, were they all hallucinating? Was it all a dream? And this causes wildfire to spread. You only need two witnesses in a court of law. They had 500, according to the, the historical documents. The disciples, number five, were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify with Jesus during the crucifixion to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection, even being willing to die for the belief. When they saw him dying, do you remember what the text says? They all ran and hid and didn't want anything to do with him because they didn't want to be killed themselves. They did not want to be arrested and killed. So they ran and hid. 
Then he rose from the dead, and they immediately flipped a 180 and said, we will now die for him. Amazing. How did this happen? The resurrection then became the focal point of all of the letters written in the New Testament. It is the center point of everything they say. There's nothing else to say except for Jesus has risen from the dead and unlocked what no man has been able to unlock. The resurrection was proclaimed in Jerusalem where the, tomb, the empty tomb was, and the result was the church was born and grew quickly based on the resurrection. That is what caused the, the church to grow very fast. Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody was proclaiming it. I saw it with my eyes. I experienced him. It's real. Sunday became the primary day of worship. Do you know why we worship on Sunday? It's resurrection day. For thousands of years now, we worship on Sunday, proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, was converted by the resurrection. A prophet isn't known in his own town, huh? Oftentimes, your family won't believe you. And Jesus' brother didn't believe him until he rose from the dead. Then the text tells us that James became a believer. And then we know Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was converted. The Christian persecutor and killer was converted. Saul of Tarsus, we have documentation that this man was real. He was educated under Gamaliel. And he traveled greatly in the Middle East, South Europe, ministered greatly in those areas. Once he was killing Christians and magically he starts telling everyone that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he is the greatest spreader of the gospel out of anyone probably in Christian history. The Christian killer converted. This is how we know the resurrection is true. That's why people declare it's a fact. This is the sign. Now, family, what are the implications in the resurrection? If it is true, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, what if he actually rose from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he said was true. In John 2, they also ask for a sign. And he says, I will give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. This will be your sign that everything I say is true and not blasphemous. Everything he said was true. Look, if somebody started walking around here on the streets and saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, brother. You're forgiven through my blood. I'd be like, dude, you're weird. He started saying, I'm going to raise from the dead. I am the son of God. I am Messiah. I know that guy's bowing down and worshiping me. Thank you. Thank you. If anybody started doing this in this city, they say, I'm the Messiah. Like, and uh, 5150, let's go. Let's call him. If he just started declaring, I will raise myself from the dead to prove to you all of it is true, we would all show up at the funeral, especially if he was doing miracles and there was a movement and all these people and he's shouting to everyone around, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise from the dead. You watch. We'd all show up, the news cameras would be there, and we'd see if this thing was really true. What if he actually raised from the dead? Then everything he was saying was true. 
over every other religious guru on the planet. Number two, if Jesus rose from the dead, there is a God and he is powerful. That means there actually is a God and that means that God is supernatural and can actually work and do miracles and raise people from the dead and there are other realms. That this is not, this physical area is not all there is. Number three, if Jesus rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead as well as promised. Not an if. We will. This proves there is an afterlife, not karma, not reincarnation. Christianity is the only religion with the real proof to show that we will rise one day to heaven as well because Jesus rose from the dead. He's the only one who attempted to do so. Muhammad is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Hare Krishna is dead. Buddha is dead. Elvis is dead. Jesus is alive. And just as said, all the armies that have sailed, I'm sorry, all the armies that have been led, all of the navies that have sailed, all of the kingdoms that have been founded have not impacted the earth as much as this one solitary life. We will rise again one day. It is our hope. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We will, we will rise from the dead one day and we will live forever. We shall never ultimately die. And so when I say to my loved ones or those who know Christ, I will see you again one day, I actually will. I'm not playing a game. Uh, rest in peace, man. I know you're going to become some uh, fat, you know, Cupid baby in heaven one day with little wings. No. We believe in a real resurrection that is actually true. If Jesus rose from the dead, God can take bad things and turn them into good things. He took the worst moment in all of history, the Son of God being crucified on the cross by sinful man, and he made it the most beautiful thing in all of history, salvation for the earth, God bringing human beings close to himself. If Jesus rose from the dead, number five, we can have life resurrected life right now that means that the power is here on the earth to actually have a resurrected life now and it's amazing when it happens and people it happened to me I remember 17 years old I remember being raised in the church the power of God was not in me I remember all of a sudden yielding myself to God one night I think I'm 16 17 years old I walked into this four-square church, and I asked this pastor to pray for me because I wanted to follow God. He prayed for me. The next day, I woke up, and I had a desire to grab my Bible and start taking it to school. I started taking it to my high school. played quarterback for my team. I was vice president of my school. I had access to all this stuff, and I started using this Bible to try to minister to kids in the high school. I can't believe it. Uh, I was so crazy one time I wrote the Ten Commandments on butcher paper like as big as this stage and I taped it to the parking lot of the school so that everybody could see they're breaking the commandments of God <laughs> and now we're not under law 
I was showing the non-believer they were breaking the law. Alex, you remember that? One of my high school buddies is here in the room. I was crazy, man. I was probably too far, to be honest. I was so radical. It probably turned a lot of people off. But something happened to me. One day I was just going the other direction, and all of a sudden the next day I am changed forever. I can't get away from it now. I say that God, you know, basically grabbed me and forced me into this job. And the Lord has done great things because of it. I'm thankful. But we have a promised resurrected life right now. I'm talking about life in that abundantly right now. Resurrection power now. Heaven begins when you start your relationship with God. And then you're with him for all of eternity. It's not when you die. Heaven begins now. We have sin messing up a lot of things still on the earth, in our eyes, in our bones. But we are connected with the Almighty. You know what heaven is? It's just being with God. And you can do that now. And we get glimpses of heaven, don't we? We get glimpses of heaven when people love and serve. We get glimpses of heaven through our kids. We get glimpses of heaven in our marriages. We get glimpses of heaven all the time. Things that are so beautiful and good. You're, almost, you're related like far beyond what you could ever think you could experience. And you're just like, this is incredible. I wish it would stay this way forever. And it will one day, praise God, because of the resurrection. Here's your sign. This is the sign. God can raise people from death to life. He does it all the time. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And to say, Christianity is summed up very simply. Please, just get on loving God and walking with him through life. Get on loving people and serving them. And then enjoy the playground of the earth he's given to you. Get on, enjoying. Be gracious and loving. Enjoy the earth. Jesus did give a sign, the resurrection. It did happen, and it has great implications. Again, if you want to dismantle Christianity, just go after the center part. Lee Strobel, maybe you've heard of him. He wrote The Case for Christ. He, uh, I believe, is a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and his job was to dismantle things. And so as an atheist, he took on the task of destroying the resurrection and Christianity. And after spending, I think it was a year of study trying to do this, uh, he came to the conclusion that the resurrection was true. He didn't know what to do about it because he knew it was true, but he didn't want to follow Jesus. It's really a powerful story because he knew it was true. He knew Jesus was real, a real person. He knew that he walked the earth and he knew that he actually raised from the dead according to the criteria that we use for ancient documents. It was all there. And eventually, of course, over time, after those uh, who were around him were praying for him and talking with him, he says he talks about a time in his kitchen when it dawned on him he is actually real. And he said that the moment came when he had to actually believe on the Lord Jesus for himself. And he said, I believe that Jesus, this Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. 
It's not an idea. They aren't facts of the past, but a personal relationship. I believe he is real, he's risen from the dead, and he has forgiven me of my sin. He's my Lord, he's my Savior, and his life has been changed forever. The one sign that conquers our two greatest problems on earth. I love this. God kills two birds with one stone. The resurrection takes care of the two biggest problems on the planet. What's our first biggest problem? Death. The billionaires are still trying to figure out how to live forever. They're going to keep trying and keep spending until they can figure it out. It's crazy. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos will die, and they know it. Can't get away from it. They can extend it maybe a little bit longer, but it's amazing that they can't get away from it. They can build all this crazy stuff, but they can't get away from death. And let me ask you this question. Even the atheists, why does death hurt you so bad? Why does it consistently hurt people no matter how many times you experience it? Why does it crush us if it doesn't even matter? It matters. We want to live forever. Why? What is in us? Why have we been programmed to desire to live forever? Our second biggest problem that Jesus fixes is our sin problem. We've been hating and hurting each other for thousands of years, killing each other, ruining each other for thousands of years. And the Lord Jesus comes down and says, not only will I resurrect you from death to life and eternity, but I will resurrect you in this life, give you a new heart and a new mind to magically start loving and serving those you thought you would never love and serve. Having grace and forgiveness for people, that's a miracle. That is power. And that's what the earth needs. We all want peace on earth. What isn't coming until new hearts and minds are brought forth. Jesus goes after these scribes and Pharisees and this generation for not believing when it's sitting right here. Can, can you guys give me five more minutes? Are you okay? Yeah. We've had a lot of segments today. I'm going to wrap this up for you right now, okay? Jesus goes after these scribes and Pharisees and generation for not believing the great sign. And he says this, look at these radical words. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who are the men of Nineveh? Do you remember the Assyrians? Dude, they were vicious. They would cut out people's tongues. They would cut the heads off and they would pile them up in giant piles to intimidate um, their enemies. They would scout people. They were vicious and brutal. And God says to Jonah, you remember Jonah? Jonah, go to Nineveh, go to the Assyrians, and I want you to go tell them to repent. He's like, what? I'm not going to them. He's like, yes, you are. No, I'm not going. Why did Jonah not want to go? Because he thought he was going to be killed? No, that's not his reason why he didn't want to go. You want to know why he didn't want to go? He didn't want to go because he knew God might forgive them. I'm not going to go preach to them. What if they repent? And what if they get a relationship with God? I'm not going to do that. God says, you will go. Jonah's like, no, I'm buying a fare. I'm getting on a cruise. I'm going to Spain. He says, no, you're not. It actually says in the text, I love the details of the book of Jonah. Go back and read it. It's only four chapters. It says he bought a ticket or he bought a fare. He paid a fare to get on a ship and to go towards Spain. 
And God says, no. And the story is beautiful. He gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a sea monster, the Hebrew. And uh, spit up onto the beach of Nineveh. God says, surprise. <laughs> and what does Jonah do? He's like, all right, forget this. I'm just going to bomb this place. You, you, you want to see a hellfire and brimstone preacher? You're going to see it. He got his sign out. He said, you're all going to hell. He wrote it in big. He walked around with his sign. God's going to crush this place in 40 days. He's going to destroy you all, okay? I'm out. Three days. Peace. I'm out of here. Forget it. It says in the text, in Jonah chapter 3, that the word went out throughout all of the city. It hit the radios, it hit the newspaper, it hit the television. Even the king, the president knew about it. And the whole nation, he called for the whole nation. Everybody's repenting to God because we're not going to die. We are repenting to God right now. And it says there, I love this. He cried out and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat. Do not let them drink water. But both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth, repentance. Let men call on God with their strength that each may turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king said this. Then God saw their works and that they turned from their evil ways so God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken he would bring upon them and he did not bring it upon them Jesus references Nineveh and says hey Pharisees scribes generation all of Nineveh will be standing at the judgment with you because they didn't have me but you have me and you want another sign they repented at the shouting of Jonah. You won't even repent, and I'm standing here with you and doing signs and wonders, and you don't get it. He says, Nineveh will be there at the judgment to condemn you. He goes one more step further. Verse 42, the queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south, will rise up with this generation, with Nineveh at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here greater than Jonah is here greater than Solomon is here it's found in first Kings 10 I wish I could get into it but it's beautiful she says she hears all these crazy things about the great Solomon the Queen of Sheba and she travels thousands of miles to go see and hear of his wisdom. When he sits down with her, he starts to tell her all about his wisdom and where it came from. And it says that she marveled. And in chapter 10, she said, verse 7, I did not believe those words until I came and my eyes had seen what you had done. And behold, the half was not declared to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity, the report which I heard. She says, how blessed are your men. How blessed are these servants who stand before you continually in a heart of wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh your God who you delighted in, who set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then it says in verse 10 that she gave the largest sum of money that anyone ever gave to Solomon. Spices and all kinds of other things. She was moved by Almighty God. And Jesus references the Queen of Sheba and says, in the judgment, she will be standing there with Nineveh to look at this generation and say, you guys had Jesus. You guys had the Messiah. You guys had the resurrection. All I had was Solomon. All we had was Jonah, who didn't even want to talk to us. 
Jesus is challenging that generation. He says, and all you want is another card trick. You adulterous generation. The sign of the resurrection is there. Verse 43 to 45 gives this picture, and we'll end with this. Jesus says, if someone comes in and cleans, cleans the demons out of a house, and it's squeaky clean, but if it's left unoccupied, if no one moves in, when the demons find out and they see that this house is empty but it's squeaky clean, the seven or eight of them will then all move in and tear the house down. What is Jesus saying? He says, the Son of Man, the Messiah, I came to you and I cleaned out the house completely, squeaky clean. I cleaned it all out. I gave you light. I gave you truth. I gave you all that you needed. The house was clean. The temple was clean. But you did not allow the Holy Spirit to fill it. The, the key word there in the text is it was unoccupied. If the house is then not occupied by the spirit and the light and the truth of God, then guess what? If it's left unoccupied, the demons will come back and they will fill that house and take over and that person will fall. That generation will fall 10 times in the other direction, even greater. In Luke chapter 16, do you remember Lazarus and the rich ruler, the rich man? Lazarus was like begging. He's like, I would just love to eat a couple crumbs off of that guy's table. He's so rich. Even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from that table. And the rich ruler treated him badly and all these things. Well, they step into eternity, and it says there in the text that Lazarus was there in Abraham's bosom, comforted and taken care of. And the rich man was in Hades and was in agony. And he cries out across this chasm and says, Hey, Lazarus, is there any way anybody could send me a drop of water to cool my tongue? This is crazy over here. He says, I'm sorry. There's no way. Nobody can cross from here to there. Nobody can help you. You had your chance when you were living to call upon God. Then he says this. Well, at least send somebody back up to earth to give them a sign that all of this is real and I am suffering right now in anguish. And what's said to him is in the text is this, the sign has already been given through Moses and the prophets and the resurrection. I'm sorry, no sign for you. There are no more signs. They have all that they need to believe. Scary but true. looking for a sign. I don't know what sign you're looking for today, but I'm telling you that Christ has already given the greatest sign, and I would even take it a step further. If you're watching today online, if you're sitting in this room here today, what more of a sign do you need? The Lord is here. He's with us. He's calling us to turn to him. We're going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord to do that in our hearts right now. We have all that we need in him and he's given us the opportunity to turn to him. So let's do it now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this perfect puzzle piece that fits right into the story of all of humanity. It's amazing how clear it comes together. Your resurrection being the key 
being the puzzle piece, being the single thing needed to bring forth life on earth and life in eternity. You've revealed so many beautiful things in one single work. We pray, Lord, that our eyes would be open, that our hearts would understand. And I pray, Lord, that this generation would not be an adulterous generation, would not be an evil generation, would not be one, Lord, where we have access to your word more than ever before. We have access to endless amounts of sermons. Your word is preached, especially here in this nation. Oh, God, please allow our hearts and minds to turn back to you with all that we have to walk with you, to teach our children and our children's children about your ways, that every generation would keep worshiping you and walking with you. Please, Lord, use us for your glory. We now, Lord, want to receive your forgiveness. We now want to call upon you as Lord and Savior once again. Lord, we want to be with you all the days of our life into eternity. We make those decisions. We make those commitments now. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.